A Night of Another Sort Introduction by Gary Deneal Read by special guest Hugh Deneal A friend of Berger from Saline County recalled how he was offered several thousand dollars to kill a man during the coal mine wars of the early 1930s, but declined, saying if he did the killing, his life would not be worth a nickel. At long last, here was a man who stood for reason and common decency. Yet hardly had those words left his lips when he broke the spell by voicing his one regret regarding the Heron Massacre in 1922. I arrived too late to get in on the fun, said the old gentleman, who even as we talked knew he was dying of lung cancer. An elderly Marion man barely suppressed a chuckle as he recalled the night some of the Burger Gang drove a corpse around town to show off their workmanship. Seeing the cigar clenched between the victim's teeth as he sat propped up in the back seat of the automobile was an extra touch that rendered the scene unforgettable. One day I went to see Beatrice to deliver an important message that was long overdue. For more than a half century, the old lady had yearned to know what had happened to her daughter Charlene, but feared she would die before learning the answer. A day or so before my visit with ailing Beatrice, my wife Judy and I found Charlene's tombstone near that of her father in the Hesed Shalemeth Cemetery in University City, Missouri. A newspaper article revealed she had died in childbirth in 1949. After I told Beatrice of our discovery, she said that shortly before my visit, her long-lost daughter had appeared to her in a dream, that my news followed her dream so closely, she felt, was more than mere coincidence. Perhaps she was right. I don't know. I do know Arvey Boswell thought it no accident that he and Riley Simmons shared the same hospital room. Odd, odd, double odd. Over the years I heard from two daughters of Hoghead Davis, Berger's bodyguard. Hoghead had disappeared after killing a man named Montgomery. The daughters wondered what had happened to their father. It was rumored he had fled to Europe, and there were other tales equally improbable. But the daughters were right in their belief that they would probably never know the truth. I was sorry not to be able to help them in the quest. As an old woman, the former blonde bombshell was more attuned to ailments and prayers to the Lord than to spicy details of her misspent youth. At my prompting, she did recall riding the interurban at Muddy and being too intoxicated to stand up. She had also keen recollection of the night in Harrisburg when somebody followed her home in an automobile. She was terrified. On another occasion, she, Berger, and two women from St. Louis were riding in Berger's armored car when gunmen opened fire. Naturally, the two from St. Louis were scared, and so was the bombshell. She tried to get under the cushions, realizing even while doing so that such action would be futile that the bullets broke through the armor. Thanks to Charlie, who was always thinking ahead, the gas tank was fixed so it would not ignite. She feared the Sheltons were after her, and she had reason to be afraid. She had stumbled over the body of Ward Casey Jones as it lay near the power plant at Shady Rest. The body was wrapped in a gunny sack. Her version of the gangster's killing differed sharply from the one carried in the newspapers. Yes, Rado Millick shot him and was hanged for the deed, but the reason he shot him was a secret the bombshell kept for many years. United States Marshal Zachary Taylor Sweeney Leach was a known womanizer and a frequent visitor at Shady Rest. He loved to drink almost as much as he loved to watch the blonde bombshell perform her unique rendition of the Hoochie Coochie. He also had a yen for a big blonde out of St. Louis who happened to be romantically involved with Ward Casey Jones. The bombshell said they were married. 
After Jones discovered his loved one was seeing Leech on the side, he proceeded to beat up the lawman to such an extent that Marshall's clothes were in shreds. Ever wanted to help out a friend who represented law and order, Berger drove the dancer back to Zack's house in Harrisburg to get his shirt, pants, and underwear. Because the bombshell lived near Zack's estranged wife and often looked after her, the United States Marshal figured she was the one to rummage through his house. He had official documents scattered about, and it would not do for a known gangster to be nosing through them. Later at the cabin, she overheard Zack tell gun-happy Art Newman that he would be pleased to see Jones out of the picture. A short time after that conversation, Millich killed Jones. Is the story true? I only know she believed it. In defense of Zachary Taylor Sweeney Leach, it should be mentioned that he persuaded his nephew Wilbur Leach not to get involved in Berger's liquor selling operation. Earlier, thinking he and the young man might go into business together, Berger had given Wilbur a 32 pistol. There were two notches on one side of the handle and a missing part on the other side. Concerning the missing part, Charlie said that came about when he ran out of bullets and had to use the pistol as a billy club. When Wilbur said he wanted to get rid of the notches, Berger said, Leave them to remember me by. Although Wilbur kept the pistol for the rest of his life, he never developed a close relationship with Berger and chose to lay the blame for this on his uncle Zack. Charlie told him twice not to come into Shady Rest, saying much to Wilbur's chagrin at the time, You don't belong here. One day, the former Hoochie Coochie star and I were discussing black-eyed peas and the luck these oddities are supposed to bring if hooked on New Year's Day. Well, said I, you kept Berger's dice all of these years, and they didn't bring you good luck. She paused. Good lord, I had hurt the old woman's feelings. I'm going to give you those dice, she said at last. After I'm gone, they will probably be thrown away anyway. And so, she gave me the lucky dice Charlie had given to her down at the cabin, and at a time his own luck had just about run out. Many people believe Berger never hanged, the blonde bombshell among them. She based her conclusion solely on the word of Jess Jones, the same Jess Jones who got lost in Centralia that time he was trying to drive Beatrice and the children to visit Charlene and Danville. I believe it made her feel more secure to think Charlie was still among the living. In her world, Berger was one of the good guys. And for all I know, she went to her grave still convinced he was out there somewhere, watching over her. She had no such illusions about Art Newman. When asked about one of the least publicized of the murders occurring at Shady Rest, that of a young man named Richie who apparently knew too much, she responded by indicating Art Newman took credit for the deed. He had nose trouble, she heard Newman say. To use one of Arlie O. Boswell's favorite phrases, when Art Newman was salted away, his wife Bessie turned her affections to a young man in Harrisburg who happened to be the latest boyfriend of the bombshell. So it was that Harrisburg county seat of Saline County and home of Derry Brand saw a free-for-all between two angry women, complete with hair-pulling and no shortage of scratching. My, how the old woman enjoyed telling that particular story. After A Night of Another Sort was published in 1981, we heard from a woman who, as a girl in 1928, had played on Berger's scaffold with some of her friends. Charlie stepped to the window of his cell and shooed them away. Get off there! That's mine! He shouted from his jail cell. In another time and place, he might have tossed shiny nickels and dimes to the children just to hear the squeals and to watch the kids scramble for their paltry treasure. Now all he had left in the world was a shred of dignity, which he was not about to squander on a bunch of bratty kids. That, and a scaffold. His scaffold. The one he had watched the carpenters hammer into useful and dreadful form. Elsewhere in Egypt, 
private grief greeted the dawn of April 19, 1928, a day some would remember for its circus-like atmosphere, marking as it did the last public hanging in Illinois. It is known that a mother and daughter wept that day, and for good reason. The mother was a former sweetheart of Berger, and the daughter was their illegitimate child. Beatrice had little use for the mother, but felt sorry for the girl, remembering how people in Harrisburg with prying minds were always bothering her. Their story was not told in the first edition of this book, and their names are not being printed here. Both are deceased. Arleo Boswell told me a lot, but purposely not everything. Of course, he had forgotten quite a bit, thanks to his prodigious intake of alcohol over the years. In the relaxed atmosphere of a barbershop in Harrisburg, he was overheard bragging that he had spilled more booze than most people drank. In a more private setting, he freely lamented that alcoholism was the curse of his life, but he had quit drinking many years before we met. A prime example of a certain holding back on the part of Boswell was his version of the shootout in Heron in 1925 between Esclin Young and Ora Thomas. Boswell would drop hints or become strangely vague when discussing details of this infamous event in Williamson County history. Why all the secrecy about something that had happened more than a half-century earlier? I could only conclude that he believed the mystery man who allegedly killed Thomas might still be alive. He had no doubt that Ora Thomas had indeed shot and killed Esclin Young only a moment or so before his own death. After I told Boswell that I was going to Patoka to visit Maud Nall, the former Miss Esclin Young, he observed with something of a smile that her husband, Taylor Nall, might be able to answer some of my questions. He seemed a little surprised when I told him that fellow alcoholic Taylor Nall was already dead. Certainly Mrs. Nall did not indicate that her second husband had any connection with the shooting that claimed the life of her first husband. But she did make an observation of her own. Were Esclin Young to return from the grave and knock on the door, she would not let him in. She had failed to heed her parents' warning about him and it was only after their marriage that she discovered the arrogant, publicity-hungry nature of the man she called husband. It was what she said next that I found most shocking of all. This woman, who had long ago been blinded by shotgun blasts while riding with Young on the highway near Oakville, and who still carried some of the shot in her face even as we spoke, believed the ambush might have been planned by Young. My notes show she also thought noted clansman and bank robber Harry Steyer might have been involved. Why her husband drove so slowly just before the shooting occurred had always remained a mystery to her. I believe she was mistaken as to Young's involvement in the matter, but I also believe her dark suspicion about the character of the man tells us more than a laudatory book or the favorable articles written about it. Meanwhile, for the ever-controversial Arleo Boswell, she had nothing but praise. She recalled how kind he was to her in those chaotic days following her husband's death. Mrs. Ora Thomas suffered a hard time as well, following the celebrated shootout that took her husband's life. The Ku Klux Klan was now in control, and bitter men in grimy sheets patrolled the streets of Heron. They determined who could and could not visit the grieving widow. A friend of Mrs. Thomas, who had earlier seen Ora's corpse on the sidewalk near the European Hotel, solved the problem of getting $500 to the widow by hiding the money in her hair, then bluffing her way past the Klansmen who were guarding the house. Again, my interest in the life of Charlie Berger began as a very young boy, listening to my grandfather, Guy A. DeNeal, and his sister Mary Parks talk about the bitterly cold late night in 1925 when Grandpa and Hosey Parks captured Steve George. George's fate was a cruel one, and is so described in the text. 
Posey Parks died in a boating accident in Arkansas in 1955. My grandfather lived another 28 years, dying in 1984 at the age of 87. Listening to the minister preach at his funeral in the Rudiment Social Brethren Church, I realized I was hearing a bit of necessary fiction. All that fiction was not the preacher's fault, because any man of the cloth bold enough and foolish enough to tell half the truth or even a tenth of the truth about any deceased individual would probably be chased from the church, and probably the county as well. My father's father told wild stories, some of them off-color, and on at least three occasions found himself in a situation where he could have easily killed a man. On one occasion, his weapon was a stone. Naturally, none of these juicy tidbits were mentioned during the funeral oration. Instead, family and friends heard about a pillar of the community, which Grandpa was, no doubt about it. We were painted a proper and sanitized portrait of a highly intelligent individual who had made an indelible impression on so many people, especially me. The oldest grandchild, I sat there and obeyed the family rule I had spent a lifetime learning. Do not contradict, with distinguished others present, the official version of things. As much as it is possible, I have tried to break that rule and to tell the truth as I have perceived. It, Clara Bow, had that quality, and so did Charlie Berger. Never fair, this indefinable distinction follows no edict of logic or morality in making a few individuals unforgettable, while ten thousand others, perhaps brighter and better than the chosen ones, are forgotten even before their obituaries yellow on the back pages of yesterday's discarded newspapers. Teachers search in vain to find a moral in these rare, meteoric lives, while priests and preachers wring limp sermons from contemplating the convoluted patterns these lives display. Such lives just happen, and happening leave the rest of us shaking our heads. <laughs>